Before we dive into this week's episode, I want to reach out to you with a very special message. This month marks the start of LARB's year-end matching grant drive, where all donations will be matched by an anonymous donor. When you support LARB, not only are you supporting the work that we do here on the LARB Radio Hour, but you're also supporting all of the writers and editors who are publishing criticism, original fiction, essays, and poetry, both on our online website and in our print magazine. Any donation to LARB between now and December 31st will go twice as far thanks to this matching donation. We hope you'll consider donating at lareviewofbooks.org backslash donate. Again, that's lareviewofbooks.org backslash donate. Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported, LA Review Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. On this week's show, we're talking with Andrew Chan about his latest book, Why Mariah Carey Matters. And as probably everybody at this point knows, we are in peak Mariah season, as we are this time of year every year. When we start hearing All I Want for Christmas is You, which is really the only way that I know that it is, in fact, the Christmas season and is probably outside of the Sia Christmas album, the only musical like ode to the season that I fully accept in my heart. I've never even heard of a Sia Christmas album. It sounds so good. It's so good. (laughs) It sounds niche. It it is probably very niche, but it's really good. (laughs) But this is this is Mariah time. And what better time is there really than all I want for Christmas is you and just an opportunity to appreciate the elusive chanteuse Mariah Carey herself. We learned a lot from Andrew's book. I have to confess, I didn't know that much about Mariah's history or that she was like so very involved in the writing process for her songs in the production and all that stuff. She's, she's a really, she's a much more dynamic musical person than just her incredible voice. Yeah. And it's also like this conversation was really, it was obviously fun for me in that same way to kind of think about Mariah and like talk about parts of her career that, like you said, I had no idea about, but it was also interesting to kind of think about Mariah as Somebody who was so iconic in the past, but whose like prime form, like the ballad, for example, after reading the book, and then when we talked with Andrew, we get into this, the ballad is kind of something that has totally receded from the pop landscape. And so also thinking about Mariah as somebody who's obviously always ever present with us, but also is an emblem of a very interesting time in music that kind of matches up in some ways with contemporary music and some ways not. Yeah. So, you know, lots of great stuff to get into. And, you know, I I sort of without contextualizing it in Mariah Carey's career, but I've noticed that like the pop hits of today, a lot, you know, somebody like Billie Eilish, it's a lot of sort of almost whispering singing. Yeah. Right, like yeah. really low low emotional sort of affect kind of Mm -hmm. it's exactly the opposite of that high loud register that Mariah Carey is famous for and the the ballads yeah don't really exist anymore we're in a very different moment yeah and maybe in our like post auto-tune moment as well it's like 
the incredible, like you said, the chanteuseness of Mariah is something that's both really refreshing to hear, like a powerful and incredible human voice that has very little like done to it, you know, but that also reminds us of like the way, not that music is totally synthetic now, but I don't know. It was just, it was very heartwarming and and a wonderful trip down my (laughs) geriatric millennial memory lane to kind of go back to those like middle school dances where Mariah Carey's songs were all that we danced to. Without further ado, should we shoop-a-doop-doop right over to that conversation? Yeah, and we should add to listeners, this ends. This conversation ends in a tune. So it does. stick around, stick around, and you'll hear some singing by ours truly. <laughs> All right, let's get to it. <laughs> All right. We're excited to have Andrew Chan with us on the line today. Andrew is a senior editor at Criterion Collection, and his writing about music, film, and books can be seen both at Criterion as well as in The New Yorker, Film Comment, NPR, Reverse Shot, and Four Columns. Andrew joins us today to discuss his recent book, Why Mariah Carey Matters, which was published in the same University of Texas Austin series as Karen Tongson's Why Karen Carpenter Matters, which listeners may remember from a previous show. Andrew puts Mariah under the microscope in this latest entry for the series, moving beyond the astounding five-octave range and whistle-tone stylings for which most of us know the diva in order to consider how questions of race, commercial viability, as well as corporate and spousal control shaped much of her iconic early career. Delving into Mariah's underappreciated, and I think probably largely unacknowledged, prowess as both a songwriter and music producer, Andrew charts her unique and virtuosic blend of pop, hip-hop, R&B, gospel, and house music into a career that is truly like no other. Along the way, he tells a personal and mass cultural story of Mariah's enduring appeal to generations of queer listeners and, of course, to her dedicated lambs. Welcome to the show, Andrew. We're thrilled to talk Mariah with you. Thank you so much for having me, Erica Medea. Andrew, so tell us about why you chose to write about Mariah Carey. So I actually had no real ambitions of writing a book. Um, my comfort zone when it comes to writing is the essay form. I've been writing music criticism, film criticism, and literary criticism for about a decade now. And I've always been pretty satisfied and comfortable in the 1,000 to 3,000 word range. But actually, during the beginning of pandemic, I ended up writing an article on a compilation that Mariah had released at that time called The Rarities, which was just an assemblage of B-sides and obscure recordings that she'd never put out before. And After I finished writing the piece, I was still itching to continue my exploration of her. She's always been a deep, long-standing favorite of mine since childhood, and I think of her as a kind of gateway artist for me. She's the first person who introduced me to a certain style of singing that I would later find in other favorite artists of mine, like Aretha Franklin, Donny Hathaway, Patti LaBelle. But because she's so close to me and my love of her is so personal, I was never really sure if I would want to write about her because I wasn't sure if I could achieve the kind of critical distance that I think is necessary to write good 
criticism on any artist. But I think it was just the curiosity and the hunger to continue discussing and examining her music that led me to pitch this to the University of Texas Press. And I knew the Music Matters series because I so admired Karen Tongson's book on Karen Carpenter, which you just mentioned. And I knew it could be a home for a more personal, idiosyncratic take on Mariah than might have been possible in a, in a different series or venue. So that's how I got started on it. So yeah, I definitely want to get back to the personal resonances that you find in Mariah's music. But I want to start out with something that maybe sounds like a bit of a criticism, but it's something that you get into a number of times in the book. And that is that early on in her career, which I think is actually the most iconic Mariah, like emotion, daydream, like those are the songs that a lot of us probably dating myself, like slow dance to, Mm -hmm. you know, and we'll also talk about what how slow dancing is actually time bound in an interesting way, I think, by Mariah. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think that early on in that part of her career and largely under the direction of Sony Music's Tommy Mottola, who would later become her husband, Mariah is kind of accused or maybe pilloried, let's say, as being a technically impressive yet milquetoast performer. So that means that she's got this prodigious vocal talent, but her material is kind of packaged, highly manufactured pap for the mainstream masses. So can you talk a little bit about those early years and how this kind of perception of Mariah shapes her public identity and her career during that period? Yeah, it's interesting to now have her quite wonderful and revealing memoir, The Meaning of Mariah Carey, which was released a few years ago because it reveals a lot of her mixed feelings. In fact, now probably tilts more toward negative feelings toward a lot of this early material that she felt pushed into writing and recording. Now, she has been a songwriter and producer from the very beginning of her career. And so all this adult contemporary balladry that would be described as pap for the masses was written by her. So there is a kind of artistic agency at play in that work. But she does say herself that Tommy Mottola, who was the head of Sony Music and also her husband for a time, pushed her into that direction so that she would be more palatable to the broadest audience, i.e., white people in addition to other minority audiences. So, and she's incredibly adept at that style of music, but it came to define her partly because single after single, that's what Sony was choosing to release from her albums. The first album, actually, she was, her career was launched with two ballads in a row as the singles. So first impressions, you know, are often the strongest. And I think for listeners growing up at that time, she became sort of solidified in the popular consciousness as a middle of the road, adult contemporary ballad singer. She was emerging at a time when a lot of discussion and kind of backlash was happening from audiences and critics with regard to the conglomeration of the record companies in the 80s. And so there was a sense of being force-fed, manufactured, cookie-cutter stars 
and the pursuit of superstars who could play big stadiums and could make, you know, flashy music videos was the demand on the side of the record companies was at an all-time high at that time. So Mariah seemed to fit the bill of yet another easily packaged corporate prioritized star who maybe didn't have any kind of artistic control. But this was never true. Even though her ambitions or her work was circumscribed by the industrial context in which she was operating, she was a songwriter and a producer on her own work from the get-go. Yeah, you know, there's one other bit about this moment that you draw out that I think is really fascinating, and it speaks to another complication in Mariah's story, which is about how race and major music publishing were functioning, or we might say dysfunctioning at this time. Like one of the things that you you point out is that actually the Mariah has also been kind of assailed with this criticism throughout her early career that she was not, she is mixed race, but that she was not, you know, kind of authentically quote unquote black. Right. And this is a kind of very weird late 20th century, but pre 21st century story about, I think, really the reductive racialization of this like mixed race singer. And what I love that you point out, which I would love for you to talk to our listeners about, is that this was also happening with artists that we kind of like Whitney Houston, for example, that we identify as kind of iconically black. And it's because Whitney was she was shaped by many of the same forces that Mariah was, but because of her background in the gospel choir and also because of like, you know, Whitney's persona, she didn't really get that same kind of backlash. And then, as you point out, too, we have Michael Jackson, a person who has completely, you know, kind of lightened his appearance over the years as the other kind of major star on the same level as kind of Whitney and Mariah. So can you talk about like how race kind of factors into this box that Mariah gets put in early in her career? Right. I think she she emerges in 1990, and this is after kind of a decade of authenticity politics has kind of dominated discussion of Black music in the 80s, particularly the later 80s. And part of this is because of how the conglomeration of the record studios led to a kind of feast or famine mentality when it came to the prioritization and the resourcing of Black artists. And so I draw on a pretty seminal text, uh, Nelson George's The Death of Rhythm and Blues, which is a pretty famous book about the deterioration of what he feels is an authentically Black R&B sound due to the obsession, the corporate obsession with crossover to white mainstream audiences. And so the argument goes that while there was massive success for an elite group of Black artists, you had to either be on a Michael Jackson or Whitney Houston or Lionel Richie level, or you were getting dropped by your label. And so this discontent within music culture was already festering. At the same time, you have R&B gospel and just generally Black musical aesthetics seeping out into the music of white artists like Michael Bolton, 
Rod Stewart. There's a lot of discussion of appropriation going on at this time, too. And even Whitney, who now is, you know, viewed as a canonical R&B Black singer, she was pilloried at the Soul Train Awards, I want to say, around the time of her second album, because there was a backlash from the from a certain segment of the Black audience who were calling her whitey for the crossover politics that were propelling her career. So Mariah emerges at this time with all of these racial politics and industrial politics swirling around her. And I think it's fair to say that the investment in authenticity as kind of a political virtue in pop music at that time led to a kind of obscuring of her talent and a decade-long measuring of her, of whether she qualified as an authentically Black artist. Of course, a lot of people didn't even know that she was mixed race until later in the decade. I think with that, maybe we can talk a little bit about, you know, something that I really liked was your interweaving with your own personal story with Mariah's. And perhaps like this is a nice way to get into that in terms of, I guess, the way that we sometimes channel our own who we are through other people or through the work of other people. Yeah. Singers, artists, films, whatever, whatever that might be. So could you talk a little bit about your relationship with Mariah Carey's work, how you first encountered it? I thought it was really sweet that that's the first album that your family, I think Daydreamer is the first album that your family, Daydream. Daydream, yeah, from 1995. That your family bought and you described seeing this poster and the store and sort of all of the different ways in which you immediately encountered her. So could you just talk a little bit about your personal history with, with her? Yeah, she really belongs to a group of two or three artists who introduced me to American pop music and became my entree into a sort of obsessive musical fandom as a young kid. When I was younger, like the ages of three to five, my main listening repertoire was Chinese language pop, so Mandarin and Cantonese pop, because my parents are Chinese from Malaysia. And so I was listening to the great divas in that world, Teresa Tang, Anita Mui, incredible artists and singers with very distinctive styles. I think it was really Whitney Houston and the Bodyguard era who really introduced me to this soulful sound rooted in gospel, but very pop as well. So when I first heard her saying, I will always love you, I was immediately hooked by the power of her voice. And Mariah was kind of another example of how that vocal style could come into play in a pop context. And so Daydream was the first album of hers that I, that my family bought. But even before that, I heard her on TV in 1993 singing Hero. I was conscious of her name. And I think if I look back at that time, it really was an encounter with the musical sublime for me. And even before I could understand how analogous or connected my experience as an Asian American gay kid was to her experience as a mixed race woman 
growing up in very difficult circumstances, I could hear something in the voice and in the sound of the music that was connecting to my experience. Of course, I was at the time only 10, 11 years old when I was really becoming a fan of her music. And so I don't think I would have had the language or the understanding to process or describe what was happening to me as a listener and happening for me through her music and the way her, the passion of her vocals and the introspection of some of her more personal lyrics was describing my experience in the closet. But I think the sound, it really begins with the sound of her voice and the intricacies of her musical production, where I find not just solace, but a kind of confrontation with ungovernable emotion, really. So I have this kind of tripartite question for you about how Mariah's moment and Mariah's career compares to kind of the music business that we have today and the kind of artist that that music business, it sounds wrong to say fosters because that's definitely not what is happening in a way that it might have still been when Mariah was was doing it. But it's definitely not the kind of, she doesn't have the kind of hits in that time that I think would be applicable today. So, so what I want to start with is kind of talking about the centrality of the ballad to Mariah's career. And the ballad is a form, and this is what I love to hear you talk about as well, that it seems like we've kind of lost over the last 20 years because, you know, again, I said I was dating myself earlier, but Mariah's songs, Hero is a version of that. There were a number of the songs from Emotion and Music Box that were middle school slow dance songs. Like, that's what you dance to. And it it strikes me now that, like, what the hell would children slow dance to now? Like, there, there is no such thing. And so I kind of wanted to talk about, is the ballad the kind of, and she does it, in, as you point out in the book, in very different ways. She has a very diverse range of processes that she uses to approach the ballad. Is that a time-bound kind of 80s, 90s pop phenomenon that, like, we simply just don't resonate with today? I love ballads, and so I love this question. Um, (laughs) And I think someone who is maybe more invested in dance music or more upbeat styles of music would have written a completely different book. But I think anyone can tell reading this book that I am particularly drawn to ballads, which isn't to say that I don't love the house remixes and the hip hop stuff that she does as well. But I think, yeah, you can notice in the, it's undeniable in the contemporary musical landscape, pop music landscape, that we've kind of lost this investment in massive ballads that require huge vocal effort and have big sweeping key changes and really work on the heartstrings in almost assaultive ways. But she is a master of this form. And I do sort of chart the very briefly, the progression of the ballad form from Frank Sinatra's days and when jazz singers were taking Great American Songbook repertoire and making it their own. And the ballad has meant different things in different eras, but I think what it represents is slowing down 
and being in touch and sometimes wallowing, sometimes submitting to emotions that maybe now would be viewed as anti-optimal or uh, toxic even. I mean, there's something, it's kind of therapy speak now to talk about, does this serve me? Well, a ballad does not necessarily serve you because (laughs) it is slowing you down. It's taking you out of the pace of life and it's allowing you to just luxuriate. If it's a sad ballad, not all ballads are sad, but (laughs) some of the best are just totally devastating and heartbreaking. It's allowing you to the perverse pleasure of wallowing. And I'm not sure how much space there is for that now, either in the way we think about (laughs) mental health or in the way we think about our emotions in general. But I would say maybe Adele is the last singer who represents like traditional balladry in that way. But I think what this association with the ballad does for Mariah early in her career is it makes her a sentimental figure, for sure. She is a singer with whom you can entrust your heart. And I think what ends up happening when she steers more hip-hop and goes for newer, maybe edgier, more original sounds is there's kind of a rupture in the audience, you know, people who are very attached to hearing that her voice on slow love songs that are deeply sentimental and completely unironic were maybe thrown by the sense of humor and the the kind of winking humor and the self-awareness and the almost satirical edge in some of her later work. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Andrew Chan, author of Why Mariah Carey Matters. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Dan Sinekin on the line with us today. Dan's new book is called Big Fiction, How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry and American Literature. And Dan is here to give us a book recommendation. Dan, what book are you going to recommend? I am going to recommend Who Will Pay Reparations on My Soul by Jesse McCarthy. Tell me more about the book. It is a collection of essays that cover a range of topics from Sappho to Toni Morrison to trap music to the scholar and poet Fred Moten by Jesse McCarthy, who I think is one of the most talented writers and essayists working today. How did you get to this book? How did you come upon it? I have been following Jesse's work in, has it's been coming out in magazines in the Los Angeles Review of Books, and Plus One, Descent, The Point, and other places that I read. And as soon as I read a couple of his essays, I just knew he was a name I had to keep my eyes out for. And as soon as I heard this book was coming, I went out and got it in hardcover and read it from front to back. It's got beautiful prose. It's got really smart ideas about art and politics and race. It's really beautiful. It sounds good. I've meant to read it for a long time. Will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Who Will Pay Reparations on My Soul by Jesse McCarthy. Great. Thanks so much, Dan. 
Thank you. We've been talking to Dan Sinekin. His new book is called Big Fiction, How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry and American Literature. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Andrew Chan, author of Why Mariah Carey Matters. This is actually one of the things that the second part that I have for you, which is that the other part of Mariah that as I was reading your book and remembering and re-listening to Mariah, which definitely everybody listening now should do because it's like great to revisit that material, is that she has, and I want to be careful about how I say this because you treat it in a very nuanced way in the book, but she has the lack of what I think I want to call interiority in her writing. So it strikes me that like right now, performers and their personas are all about this very direct and obvious autobiographical reveal, right? That we have a kind of expectation that the performer and the content are synced. And with Mariah to, as you point out in in a number of your readings, like to the trained ear, you can hear the biographical elements that are trickling through some in between the lines of those lyrics and hooks. But it seems to me that that's like, we want that to be more on the nose and more direct. And maybe that's part of the like, the therapy age that we're also in that it's all about kind of sharing. But that has made me wonder, like, if Mariah were starting today, would her career even be possible? I think definitely not with the kinds of ballads that she was singing at the beginning of her career. But she does reach a kind of specificity and particularity in her lyrics, I would say, in the later 90s. And so you have songs like Outside, Petals is one from 1999 that's quite specific to her struggles with her dysfunctional family and the way they were kind of leeching off of her fame. That's also a moment, though, when she's very publicly, she's broken from Tommy Mottola. Exactly. She's actually, even in the music itself, she's going through like a whole kind of reemergence. I mean, this is before the very on the nose title, The Emancipation of Mimi. Exactly. But it's kind of, she's trying different musical styles and trying to come out of her shell, both as a person and as a kind of, corporate product, I guess we could say. Exactly. I think those are the kinds of songs that she always wanted to write. And they're by no means the majority of her repertoire. She does sort of tend toward a kind of universalism, which kind of reaches, for me, (laughs) an artistic low point with a song like Hero as Lovely as it is, I I think it's unfortunate that that became the defining ballad of her early years because it's so generic and schmaltzy, even more so than some of the other ballads that she had already released, and she herself has said so. But she is capable of a kind of granular, detailed autobiographical writing that, as you say, you do have to sort of be tuned into the hardcore fandom (laughs) of her music to be able to interpret. There's a song from 1997's album Butterfly called The Roof, which is about her very brief relationship with Derek Jeter, the baseball star. And it's very kind of pointillistic in its lyrical detail. 
And this was a very different kind of songwriting from what she presented early in her career, where it seems like almost anyone could have written the lyrics to some of those big ballads. So there is a kind of a double identity that she was working with, kind of like the mass market balladeer and then the more diaristic confessional songwriter. And I feel like because she emerged as the former, it became very difficult for most people to see her as the latter. I wonder if we could, or if you could tell us how you think she is positioned relative to the other divas that were sort of supreme in the 90s that I remember, you know, Divas Live. Yes. (laughs) When you gathered all of those women on stage together and, you know, watched them outsing each other. But, you know, (laughs) in terms of, it does seem like there was a moment there where there was like a huge diva sort of pop presence. And you can sort of tell us who you think falls into that camp. I think like for me, it's like pretty obviously like Whitney Houston, Celine Dion, Mary J. Blige, I think would probably fall into that camp. So how does Mariah fit in with those other women? How does she stand out? What makes her different from the other divas that we all kind of grew up with? She definitely has been most commonly grouped together with Whitney Houston and Celine Dion. They were by far the biggest selling big-voiced divas of the 90s. And she, at the beginning of her career, was constantly being compared to Whitney Houston in a way that I think both singers very openly resented before they became friendly later in the decade. But she is very different from both of those singers, primarily because she is the songwriter of her own material, the producer of it, as well as often the vocal arranger. But it isn't just artistic agency that is the difference here, because I do want to stress that singers possess artistic and creative agency as well. You can be a major creative force in the music that you produce, even if you haven't written your own material. Certainly that is the case for great singers like Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald and, you know, the jazz tradition. But for me, the difference is primarily sonic. And so I think a general listener would lump them together because the common thread is big climaxes, high notes, and a lot of belting. (laughs) But what I find to be really special in Mariah's approach to her music is actually a lot more subtle. And she doesn't often get credit for the sonic nuances that she brings to her productions and her arrangements. She, unlike Celine Dion and Whitney Houston or Mary J. Blige, used a lot of multi-track recording to stack her vocals sometimes dozens of times and and create these walls of sound with her voice. She, at a certain point in her career, became very fixated on background vocals. She had begun as a background vocalist and she had learned, as she says, how to use her voice the way a painter uses paint. And you really hear this on the 1997 album Butterfly, which she considers her masterpiece, as do many of her fans, songs like The Roof, songs like Baby Doll, where the voice, dozens of Mariahs are swirling around 
one another. And there's a kind of sonic depth and intricacy to what you're hearing that, to me, distinguishes her as a as a singer who thinks about the voice not just in the sense of this powerful force that emanates from behind a microphone, but as a sound that can be manipulated and explored in interesting ways in a studio. Speaking of the interesting directions that Mariah takes across the course of her career, and I want to also ask, you know, kind of what wild things you learned while doing the research for this that really surprised you. Because one of the ones that really like made me like sit up in bed and be like, wait, what? Was when you reveal kind of late in the book that there's a period in the mid 90s when Mariah Carey, who we do not understand in this way, is listening to a lot of hard rock albums from bands (laughs) like Hole and Green Day and produces this like, I guess you could call it secret. I did not know about it. And I I guess and gather that most people do not know about it. But she produced a secret alternative rock album called Someone's Ugly Daughter that was released under the name Chick. I mean, on the one hand, this speaks to the wild diversity of Mariah's like musical interests and styles. But can you talk a little bit about Someone's Ugly Daughter, but also anything else that you found out during the research phase of writing this book that just really surprised you even as a longtime super fan? The news of Someone's Ugly Daughter came out around the time of her memoir, and it is mainly hardcore Mariah fans who know about this, but it's (laughs) never been released in a version that has her vocals on it, or I think, you know, it was released under the name of the band Chick, but her vocals are kind of like pressed to the background, and there was another front woman who ended up performing those songs, but Mariah was a primary songwriter on that album, and it began kind of as a lark during the recording of her 1995 mega-hit album Daydream, which it's interesting to think about the sonic contrasts between Daydream and this punk grunge album. (laughs) Um, Daydream is so luxurious and opulent, and Someone's Ugly Daughter is just grimy in the way that you think of a whole record or an L7 record. But to me, as a longtime fan, it makes sense because I know just how voracious Mariah is as a listener and fan of music. This is an artist who has traveled across pop, R&B, hip-hop, gospel, house, even country music and jazz, and has done it quite persuasively. Maybe not always, maybe her forays into different genres are not always the best work that she can offer. I think she really is primarily an R&B singer, but she has a curiosity about music that is Vast, And I think that also is what sets her apart from some of these other divas in the 90s. She talks in her memoir about just being obsessed with the radio. And I think when she says that, she's not saying obsession in the way that a lot of music fans would describe it, listening attentively and memorizing lyrics and all that. Yes, that is part of her experience, but I think from a young age, she was interested in finding the key to what makes a great pop record. I think she is, she's interested in the formulas that make certain genres 
work and what makes a pop song successful. And so it is kind of natural that her ear would go to other genres, if only as a way of comparing and contrasting her own primary domain, pop and R&B. What else surprised me in the research? I would say I really focused on doing my homework for a chapter that covers the influence of house music and gospel on her vocal style. In the early 90s, she was, as I said, primarily known as a adult contemporary ballad singer, coded as very white, very safe, very conventional. But it is through her house remixes, some of which are epically long, 11 minutes long, and through her forays into gospel music, primarily in her first Merry Christmas album, where she begins to experiment with different vocal sounds and starts to sound truly uninhibited and experimental as a vocalist. And I think one of the interesting things that was uncovered when I did an interview with a gospel scholar and asked her about what was interesting about Mariah's connection to this style of music, because she did not grow up in a Black church and was not necessarily surrounded by the sounds of gospel from a young age. And Claudrina Harold, who has written a wonderful book about contemporary gospel, she told me that the influence of the Kojic style, which is Church of God in Christ, is incredibly pronounced in the way Mariah sings gospel. She's listening to gospel legends like the Clark sisters, Vanessa Bell Armstrong, who were known for their audacious vocal stylings. And she contrasted this with Whitney Houston's approach, which to her sounds very Baptist, stately, (laughs) regal, kind of composed behind the microphone, whereas Mariah is kind of riffing and running all over. So that kind of surprised me, that connection. I also wanted to ask you, as a a fellow gay, (laughs) at the time when I was kind of like coming up, and this would be like when I was working as as like a fashion reporter in in the early 2000s, the generation of gay men above me, you know, who I kind of took all of my cues from, they firmly divided themselves. Now, this is all kind of like very pre-Beyonce day. Like, you know, Destiny's Child was a thing, but it's not like... So that's part of why there's such a delimitation here. But they divided themselves very cleanly into there were Mariah people and there were Madonna people. And I guess I was by default a Madonna person because she was more dance floor kind of centric. But... Can you talk about what that difference means? Like, A, let's also say this is a total bullshit distinction between, like, <laughs> two very popular queens who have, you know, who do not need to be put in competition. But it always very much struck me that, like, those were the poles. You know, there was, like, maybe some side strain that was, like, the Celine Dion queens. But, like, mm-hmm. you didn't really want to talk to them because they were in their <laughs> own world. But can you talk about this kind of like, especially as you were talking about her kind of entrance into like queer house music, how Mariah circulated as a kind of gay fan figure? I think this is really interesting. These kinds of gay, almost competitions of taste or these these fiefdoms <laughs> that we create. Because you're right, what you're suggesting is it really meant something right. if you were like the Mariah girl or the Madonna girl. Like that was an identity. 
Right. It's a difference of kind of gay. And I'm sure that there are analogs to this now. It's hard to believe that this is even a comparison that's viable for people because Madonna does not sound a thing like Mariah. And they both offer very different experiences. But I guess in that difference, it makes sense that one would gravitate to one artist over another. I happen to love both. I am more of a Mariah fan, though. Um, but I think Madonna is has always been outspoken, edgy, even though she is a pop artist. She takes really outrageous, but sometimes really bold and courageous stances politically. Mariah has never been that. But Mariah has the kind of transcendent vocal talent that Madonna could never claim. So they're offering different things as artists. But I guess what you're asking about is queer fandom. And there is a moment in her career when she seems to very consciously align herself with the LGBT audience. It's around the time of her 1999 album Rainbow, which is called Rainbow, and for which she hired the photographer, the gay, extremely kitschy photographer, David LaChapelle, to do the album artwork and started doing really kind of campy, sometimes homoerotic photo shoots her visual style completely changed. And this, as you know, was sort of in the wake of her divorce from Tommy Mottola. But that connection to gayness was there from the beginning, even in small ways. David Cole was one of her key collaborators in the early 90s. He's Cole and Clavillis were the duo behind some of her biggest house-oriented tracks, like Emotions, like the... 11-minute Anytime You Need a Friend remix that was huge in the clubs. And the aesthetic of those tracks is incredibly gay. So I think in the fact that she proved to be so committed to the work of being a remix artist, in fact, she, unlike most pop divas of her time, re-recorded her vocals for remixes often recomposed the melodies, rearranged the vocals, and was giving her all to this particular format for which the audience primarily was gay men, speaks to her investment in the queer audience. And I think gay men picked up on that, partly because there is something of the connoisseur about a certain kind of gay listener. And if you can know a certain side of an artist that the general public doesn't know, then that only forges a deeper connection. And Mariah, for sure, was offering this kind of shadow self <laughs> in her club remixes. But there's another reason that I think that queer audiences gravitate to her in particular, and I think it is the anxiety and insecurity that runs through her music from beginning to the present. And this is the anxiety of a woman who grew up mixed race in economically insecure circumstances and has never felt good enough or in some senses 
human enough for everyone. And she's incredibly open about that. And I think what I personally connect to as a gay listener in her music is an acknowledgement of the fact that that pain, that insecurity doesn't go away necessarily. Maybe it gets more manageable, but these are formative feelings that become the foundation of your experience on this earth. And in her most personal songs, like Outside, like Looking In, she doesn't seem to be wishing away her pain or offering false narratives of closure and healing. And I think for gay listeners who, you know, have lived (laughs) a couple decades like I have, you realize, oh, that original pain kind of just stays with you and is something that you have to confront forever, (laughs) which doesn't mean that life isn't worth living, but it's just a reality of experience. So I think there's something deeply real and authentic in that acknowledgement in her music. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. Just to close this out, I mean, I think we're about to enter into months of hearing Mariah Carey on the radio over and over again in a song that I love and I wholly enjoy. But I was curious what you what do you think her status is today? I don't know what young people like. What how do you think they approach Mariah Carey? <laughs> do none of us maybe none of us know. How do you think they approach Mariah Carey and what iteration do you think she's going to take? I've had mixed feelings, to be honest, about the Queen of Christmas direction of her legacy mode. I think um, many fans love it and other fans wish we could get new music or that it wasn't always about this particular season. But that being said, I think her Christmas music is really remarkable in her investment in uh, the aesthetics of Christmas and the spirituality of the holiday is kind of undeniable. But I hope that that is only a portal for people to enter into the rest of her catalog. And it's been interesting to go on a book tour with this book and meet a lot of younger fans who know her through later albums like Me, I Am Mariah, The Elusive Chanteuse, crazy (laughs) title, and Caution, which are less commercially successful albums, but I think artistically are deeply intriguing and quite successful in conveying the passions and artistic hunger of an artist who in her third decade of stardom is still exploring new sounds and wanting to collaborate with new people while still sounding inimitably like herself. So I think because she has always had a cross-genre curiosity and is a songwriter and producer, I think she's in it for the long haul. And I see her almost like a pop R&B analog to someone like Bob Dylan, who Mm. even when the voice changes, even when the vibe becomes a little looser and more shambolic, the music never stops being interesting. And that's because these are artists. They're by no means the only two, but they belong in a certain class of artists 
who live through music and express themselves through song. And I think that is also what sets her apart from a lot of elite vocalists of her time. You know, for many great vocalists, once the voice is no longer as pyrotechnic as it used to be, or once the material, once they're no longer in line for the best material that the industry has to offer, the careers kind of stop. But Mariah has a way of generating melodic ideas and sonic pleasure that I think will go on and on as long as she wants it to. But we are, in terms of her legacy, I think we're in an interesting moment because the tides have turned for pop music over the past couple decades. An artist like her who was once reviled by the white male rock-oriented critical establishment is now being named, you know, the number one song of the 90s by Pitchfork, which was unimaginable years ago. And R&B itself, 90s R&B in particular, has sort of emerged as this venerable and prized cultural body of work. And I think that's a wonderful thing. What I tried to do with this book is really hear her as a musician before the cultural icon and before the celebrity. I really wanted to get back to what the music is all about and teach people, maybe younger generations who don't have the the frames of reference to really understand how to listen to this music, teach them what to listen for and they can judge for themselves whether it's for them. I think that is a lovely place to stop. So with just a quick... Wait, Andrew, (laughs) you do say, you do say in the book that you have a voice. Not the voice. Not the voice. The voice. (laughs) (laughs) But a voice. A voice of our generation. Do you want to take us out on a little shubadoo? Oh. Well, that at the end was Eric. Got to add that. We'll cut mine out. Yeah. (laughs) But thank you so much, Andrew. It has been a pleasure talking with you. We've been speaking with Andrew Chan, author of Why Mariah Carey Matters. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you both. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.